Welcome back, everyone. This is Sam. And this is Corrine, and we are two Ankh Docs. And I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan from the Fellow On Call. This week's episode, we'll be focusing on a few details on the current treatment of resectable non-small cell lung cancer, or NSCLC for short, and covering an ASCO 2023 abstract looking at neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy, followed by adjuvant immunotherapy. This was studied in the Keynote 671 trial, one of the myriad Keynote trials out there. Yes, these early stage non-small cell lung cancer were so heavily tested on our board, so it's definitely important to know. And so let's get into the basic management. How do we currently treat patients with resectable non-small cell lung cancer? Yeah, there are a ton of options in 2023 for these patients. Recall in our prior discussions that for the majority of patients with resectable lung cancer, we're doing it right away. We're going to try and cut the tumor out upfront with systemic therapy afterwards if indicated. That said, there are certain populations in whom we do recommend going forward with neoadjuvant therapy first. In the context of our current guidelines, this is often referred to as induction therapy. And remember from our episodes on lung cancer, the fellow on call criteria for not proceeding with surgery upfront, so for going with induction therapy. That's when the tumor invades other structures or invades the mediastinum, where there are central lymph nodes involved. These are the lymph nodes with single digit numbers assigned to them. Or you have a tumor that's over seven centimeters in size. And one of those three, we qualify somebody for treatment before they go to surgery. I think those are extremely important to know walking into any test, your boards, IT, and also any clinical consult. So it's also really important to emphasize that the standard of care for years was without question upfront surgery followed by adjuvant chemo if indicated. To keep it simple, think about any nodal disease or tumors that are larger than four centimeters. Chemotherapy incorporates a platinum doublet based on histologic subtype. So that's cisplatin plus pemetrexed if it's adenocarcinoma, or cisplatin plus gemcitabine if it's squamous cell carcinoma. But what is the rationale for giving neoadjuvant treatment for those higher risk patients with central lymph nodes or very large tumors? So the idea here is that In these patients that are very high risk for having metastatic disease, even if we can't detect it on those initial scans, we think of patients with very large tumors or central nodes involved as probably having some degree of micrometastatic disease that we just can't see yet. And so the role for upfront therapy in these patients is to try and eradicate or get some control over that systemic micrometastatic disease as early as possible, given the particularly poor prognosis that patients have recurrence after surgery. It also helps to improve chances of durable local control following surgical intervention. So induction therapy can be either chemotherapy alone or concurrent chemoradiation. And in 2023, most will opt for systemic therapy without radiation in the induction setting. So Dan, in in the keynote 671 that we're going to be talking about today, I I happen to notice that in this trial, the inclusion criteria specify that any patients with resectable disease was able to be included. So based on what we just said, why would we be giving chemotherapy in the new adjuvant setting for this entire patient population instead of just focusing on those super high-risk patients? Yeah, so let's start with the rationale for adjuvant chemotherapy, just generally speaking. We know that based on the pivotal LACE pool analysis, we're getting just a little over 5% benefit from adding adjuvant chemotherapy with an incremental increase in benefit for higher stages of disease. The rationale for chemotherapy upfront in these patients is to try and achieve, again, more systemic control of potential micrometastatic disease, because we understand that patients are going to have a long recovery time after complex or involved operation to, to remove these thoracic tumors. 
and they may end up being less fit to tolerate intensive adjuvant chemotherapy. So in addition to gaining that upfront control of micrometastatic disease, we're trying to get a larger proportion of patients through chemotherapy. The numbers bear this out as well, with up to 90% of patients completing neoadjuvant chemotherapy regimens versus around only 60% who complete the total adjuvant chemotherapy regimens when they have undergone some of these operations. Despite fewer patients completing all cycles of adjuvant therapy, interestingly, when looking at neoadjuvant versus adjuvant approaches, the overall survival was the same, whether we do a neoadjuvant or adjuvant treatment in many historical trials, which is why we generally reserve this neoadjuvant or induction treatment for the higher-risk patients. So why try novel approaches to neoadjuvant therapy instead of just going adjuvantly? And we know that immunotherapy works incredibly well in the metastatic setting. So what if we could do better than that 5% improvement by adding immunotherapy to that chemotherapy backbone? If we're going to add immunotherapy, let's do it in the neoadjuvant setting so that patients can complete all the cycles instead of adjuvantly, where there may be further complications as we just discussed. Nivolumab with chemotherapy was evaluated against placebo plus chemotherapy in the phase 3 RTC called Checkmate 816. And this study showed improved pathologic CR rates by a little over 20%, which was the primary endpoint. So now we're adopting the use of Nevo plus chemo for many other resectable patients, and in particular, stage three patients with central mediastinal lymph node involvement today. So that's where this trial came in, and it was presented at ASCO 2023. It's the Keynote 671, and this randomized patients with resectable stage 2 to 3B non-small cell lung cancer to chemotherapy plus pembrolizumab for four cycles, followed by a year of pembrolizumab in the adjuvant setting, and compared it to chemotherapy plus placebo for four cycles, followed by a year of placebo. Chemotherapy was chosen based on the histologic subtype that we just talked about before this. And like we discussed earlier, unlike the new adjuvant nolomab study, the study was powered for both EFS and OS with pathologic CR as a secondary endpoint, which is very important. And we'll be talking a lot about this. So what did the study population look like? First, I want to clarify what EFS means. And this is an event which is defined as progression based on resist criteria, either before or after surgery, unresectable disease at the time of surgery, recurrence, or death. This is different than disease-free survival, which is when we're thinking about the disease went away and how long does it take for the disease to recur, for example. So that's why I wanted to make that small clarification for EFS. And it is interesting here that we have a better endpoint than something like PATH-CR, which isn't always a validated surrogate for even EFS or OS, which is the most important thing. There were over 300 patients in each arm of this trial. 75% of patients completed four cycles of therapy in both groups. Only 2% of the study population was African-American, and this is very different than the trial we discussed last week with Hodgkin lymphoma and that SWOG 1826, so we need to do a lot better in this regard, and we want to highlight that. Roughly 50% of the patients had stage 3A and N2 disease, so central higher-risk mediastinal lymph nodes, which is very important for a representative higher-risk population. And for pdl one status, a third had a pdl one greater than 50%. A third of patients had a PDL1 1 to 49%, and a third of patients had PDL1 
less than 1%. So very well balanced. And in terms of driver mutations, 3% had EGFR mutations and 3% had ALK mutations. This does seem pretty well balanced and appropriately had more patients with higher risk disease and central lymph node involvement. So Dan, what were the results of the study? First off, we didn't get all the results from the study yet because the overall survival data has not matured yet, meaning that we haven't been studying this group of patients long enough to see what the, the OS change is between these two groups. But we did get interim analysis for event-free survival, or EFS, and some data on the pathologic CR rates. We saw a significant improvement in EFS with the addition of pembrolizumab. The 24-month EFS was 60% in the pembrolizumab arm versus 40% in the control arm for hazard ratio of 0.58, which is pretty impressive. Looking at subgroup analysis on the forest plot, we saw that there was incremental increased benefit of for folks that had a higher PDL1 expression when stratifying into three groups less than 1%, 1 to 49%, and greater than 50%, which are pretty st standard cutoffs in, in PDL1 measurement. We also saw an increased path CR with the addition of pembrolizumab as well, 18% versus 4%. What I thought was really interesting is they also showed what's called an exploratory analysis, looking at the interaction between PATH-CR and EFS. And so what they found doing this analysis is that patients who did achieve a PATH-CR did better than those who didn't. This seems like a fairly straightforward conclusion. Uh, it kind of makes sense that if all the disease goes away, those patients do better. But a, a really interesting thing they found was that even if patients didn't achieve their PATH-CR, patients who got PEMBRO had improved EFS. And so I, I think that was a pretty interesting finding. And it suggests that pembrolizumab can be beneficial for this sort of management of micrometastatic disease, even if you're not achieving optimal local control. That's really interesting, Dan. And, and so essentially, you know, these results seem quite promising. And yet another trial showing the role of neoadjuvant chemo-IO I think as we've been doing in this series so far, it's important to highlight what some of the cons of this upfront therapy are. And so I think we should probably talk about some of the adverse events that were reported in the trial. So 25% of patients in the PEMBRO arm had immune-related adverse events. 11% got hypothyroidism and 5% of those patients developed pneumonitis in the pembrolizumab arm. 5% of patients in the PEMBRO arm also had to discontinue therapy due to toxicity from their Im immune-related adverse events. Overall, there were 8% more grade 3 to 5 side effects in the PEMBRO arm of the study. So overall, this suggests that there is a benefit, but it does come with this increased side effect profile, time toxicity given the added year of adjuvant therapy, and of course, more financial toxicity. One of the things that I want to highlight too is the way this analysis was done from a statistical standpoint is we're going to give our listeners some critical appraisal skills. One important thing in looking at subgroup analysis is to try to determine which, which patients will benefit the most from the treatments that we give. In this study, basically the question was, well, if you didn't get a PATH-CR, does PEMBRO still help you? Or if you did get a PATH-CR, whether you got chemo or PEMBRO, does PEMBRO help you more, right? Is it having more control of this micrometastatic disease? The important thing is, from a statistical standpoint, if you do not pre-specify an interaction test, then you cannot trust the results of the subgroup analysis. The reason why I say that is you could split the data up 
in any number of infinite ways. You could choose whatever subgroup you wanted to. And if you test enough subgroups, you might find a positive finding just by chance alone. And I can give you an example of this, and this is what we call multiplicity. And in this study with this exploratory analysis, which they appropriately called it an exploratory analysis, they did not test for a statistical testing of interaction. Meaning if you had a pathologic CR, does that change the influence of pembrolizumab versus if you did not have a pathologic CR, for example? And I think that's really important to think about. One other important thing when I think about multiplicity is that let's say that you were trying to find out if treatment A is better than treatment B, because that's really what we're trying to do. So let's take an example where we had two archers. And these one archer is a trained professional archer, and the other one is me. And let's say we had a target that was very large. The trained archer, if given one arrow, could hit that target no matter what. We would know they would hit the target. I myself, if I only had one arrow, I might miss the target. We would know trained archer is more special than me. They're better than me. But what if you gave me 50 arrows and I could keep on shooting and I hit one of those targets by chance? Then we would have a problem. So another way to deal with this is by actually modifying the p-value to make it more stringent which also is not often done in these clinical trials. So it's very hard to take a definitive conclusion from this. And I think that's really important to understand. You could make that target bullseye smaller. So now if you have a smaller target, even if you gave me 50 arrows, I'm still not going to hit it. But the trained professional archer would. So that's a little bit of me ranting on interaction testing and multiplicity. Thanks for going over that, though. I think it's important to, to kind of have that concept in mind. You might ask yourself, how does all of this change practice? Is this just another trial that shows the utility of adding neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy? I don't think it's any more compelling than the results we saw with nivolumab and nivolumab in prior trials, which we didn't discuss today. And a major downside is, again, this mandatory year of adjuvant pembrolizumab immunotherapy. Absolutely. Immunotherapy is definitely moving in all disease sites, neoadjuvant, adjuvant setting. Um, so we definitely need to be well-equipped to deal with immune-related adverse events um, as we start to increase the rate of immunotherapy use. Um, and so that was a wonderful overview. Thank you for listening. And we will continue our collaboration episodes where we'll cover the next abstract from the ASCO annual meeting. And as always, please feel free to reach out to us with questions, comments, corrections on our Twitter, Instagram, or website, 2OncDocs, and the fellow on call.